So, in, uh, in John 2, we're going to kind of pick it up right in verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Now, we're going to read about Jesus coming into the temple courts and whomping and stomping on all of the distractions that are keeping people from deliverance that is going on there. This happens as well in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it happens at the very end of his ministry. And so a lot of people grapple with the idea, when did it happen? Did it, did, did it happen then, and then John just placed it here? Did it happen in the beginning, and then Matthew, Mark, and Luke placed it at the end? W- which way did this thing really go? Because it seems to happen at, uh, you know, around Passover time in both cases. I would, I would think, because of the anchoring of the timing in John, and the anchoring of the timing in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that it just happens twice. It's the best explanation that we've got. We know, based on the events of John 2, that it is just weeks into Jesus' ministry when all of this stuff is going down. And now the very first Passover that would come from this also seems to be at the beginning. Because John will mention two other Passovers. There's three Passovers that are mentioned in the Gospel of John. Here, later on, when we, when we get to John 6 and the, the long chapter there... And then at the very end of John 11 into John 12, the Passover is mentioned for a third time. Uh, so I would, I would really think that this is a situation that, unfortunately, Jesus had to do more than once. Okay, so when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Sure, he was traveling south from uh, Capernaum down to Jerusalem from a map standpoint, but you always say up to Jerusalem in the scriptures, not only because of the pride of place and prominence of place that Jerusalem held, but also because you had to climb up a a, a mountain to get there. So up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So, He made a whip out of cords. The the whip would have been made out of bulrush, so it would not have necessarily been, you know, like thorns and briars in this whip, but but something, you know, probably less ominous. But nonetheless, it doesn't matter what the whip is made of, it's what's coming out of Christ that makes it so clear that there is indignation bubbling over here. But he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. The the Greek word there is emporium. Stop turning this into an emporium. His disciples remembered that it is written, and they remember from Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. Again, another timing anchor, temporal anchor that we have here is the, the alternate translation, depending on how you grapple with the original text, could have been this temple was built 46 years ago. And maybe some of your translations actually do say that, or you have a footnote that says that. Fun fact, 
Herod is the, the fellow who built this second temple, not the Solomon's temple, but this second temple. And he reigned from 37 to 4 BC. Josephus says that in the 18th year of his reign, he began to build the temple. And it took about 18 months for him to complete the temple. So he would have begun it maybe around 19 BC and finished it around 17 BC. And so if you go 46 years forward from the completion of that, you land here in April of 30 AD. Uh, there is no year zero in case you start to do the math yourself and saying, hey, 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 shouldn't it be 29? No year zero. So that, that's what brings us right here uh, to, to the year 30, 30 AD uh, in, in April. And that would have then, of course, you know, kind of put Christ on the cross in 33 AD as well. But it also seems to also anchor us to an early date either way. There's an anchoring to an early date of this clearing of the temple. All right, back to this. It has taken 46 years or 46 years ago built this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He didn't need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So Jesus realizes there are fickle crowds, and uh, for him to kind of anchor his stability on what the crowds were saying is a faulty idea at best. He recognized that, no, what he's doing, he's doing for the name of God. What he is welling up with right here with a zeal and a passion for the name of God and for the honor of God and for the house of God, all as we see it here. But this is at the least a, a radical difference of what we normally think of when we think about Jesus. And as he's looking at the scene coming into this Passover scene Jerusalem, normally about 80,000 in population, wells up to perhaps half a million, even more have been the estimates of, of even a million that come thronging into Jerusalem. It is pandemonium, massive crowds all over the place. And by the way, the people that are coming, there, there is an actual, there's an actual need to exchange money and money for even some sacrifice animals, particularly the, the Passover lamb that you would need. I'll, I'll talk about that more in a moment. But his issue is not so much that this is happening because actually Leviticus and Numbers both make provision for the fact that if you're coming from a certain distance away, then once you get to Jerusalem, then exchange, exchange your, your money, your shekels for a lamb. Or if you're coming from far away and you've now using foreign uh, currency because the Jews have been dispersed and you've got foreign currency, you don't want to bring currency into the temple that's got the image of the emperor on it. That would be breaking one of the Ten Commandments. That would be a, a radical departure from what you would, would and should do to pay the temple tax. And all good Jews obeyed Leviticus where you were commanded to come three times a year to the big festivals 
Passover being the first of those big festivals. So they were all coming and they all knew that I had to exchange my coins and I also had to buy an animal when I got there. So the fact that this is going on is not necessarily the, the disturbance that is going on in Jesus' soul because you're supposed to do those things. The issue is where it's happening. It's happening all around the temple itself. The temple itself as a building is in view here, but the temple courts is the word that's being used here of the kind of the grounds surrounding the temple. And those grounds surrounding the temple were supposed to be a place of prayer, of, of the court of the women, the court of the Gentiles. This is where seekers come and find God. This is where all of this begins to happen. And what's interesting is these half steps of compromise that have now discouraged many seekers from being able to come in and be part of what God wanted, all nations to flow into this temple, all nations to flow into the redemption that is God. This is now being absolutely undermined by might have originally been a good-hearted intent to make it really easy to fulfill Leviticus in, in numbers when you're supposed to come from far away and get your lamb at the temple and get your, your, your coins at the temple. But it didn't need to be at the temple. As a matter of fact, it used to be in a different spot, but that'll have, I'll talk about that in point number three. What, what happens here, though, is in Jesus, unlike everybody else who would become dull, who would become acclimated to compromise... Jesus looks at the house of God and a zeal begins to burn inside of him. A zeal that is, that is described of the same zeal of Phineas when he saw illicit sexual encounters going on in the camp of God in Numbers 25. All of the rest of the leadership and the membership of Israel sat and just simply wept. But Phineas grabbed a sword, went into the tent and brought that sword, I mean, brought that, that uh, lance through, through both, both of the offenders. And the wrath of God was held off. And interestingly, God said, because he was zealous for the honor of God, I will make a covenant of a lasting priesthood with him forever. Because someone had zeal for my honor. Someone had zeal for my holiness. Now for us, we, it's easy to kind of lose view of just how important the temple was. The temple was the center place, God's place, God's vehicle for redemption. And, and as we begin to look at this Jesus with thunder in his voice, lightning in his eyes, this meek and mild Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let the little children come to me. Here's my lamb. Peace, peace. Jesus is suddenly, boom, clothed in zeal for the honor of God. I don't think we can begin to even appreciate what that would have been like. Jesus was doing things that would have offended the, the authorities of the Jews at that point. It, it would be like somebody today kind of taking onto themselves authority and saying, you know what? I know that the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia issues driver's licenses, but I'm going to go ahead and issue them for you. <laughs> because I really am the embodiment of the Commonwealth of Virginia. <laughs> right? 
that's not going to go unnoticed. And it's also not going to go unaddressed. Jesus was doing these sorts of things leading up to this very place of, of really claiming for himself an authority that was astounding. But now he has an authority of an owner. Right? A little while ago at the, at the wedding in Cana, he was a guest. And as a guest, he kept the wine flowing. We all like that Jesus. Right? Jesus keeps the party going. Now he's a buzzkill. I don't know about this Jesus. This Jesus who begins to well up and see that we're supposed to be here to worship. He looks up. We're supposed to be here. Engaged. and in... Hold on. Sure, we all like the wine flowing Jesus. <laughs> but what about the whip in hand Jesus? Those are all my electronic devices, by the way, that no longer work. <laughs> But you know, even, even, even as you, uh, even as you encounter this Jesus, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy to come to a place of saying, well, you know, I'd like to, I like to think of Jesus more as, you know, baby Jesus with the golden light coming from the manger scene. I like to, I like to think of Jesus as the, as the forgiver. I like to think of Jesus as the, the one who says to love your enemies. I like to kind of have my picture of Jesus and to kind of keep it finely curated so that I can hold him really close to me in, in the way that I want to. Well, thank you for your input on who Jesus should be. But it doesn't matter how you prefer to think about God. You don't do that with other realities in the world. Right, let's, let's say we're off to uh, visit colleges and 
in Roanoke, and along the way, it's a winding, twisting, turning road. And after a while, car sickness issues come up, and you think, you know what? I'm wearying of all these turns. I'd like to think of this as a straight road. (laughs) And yet, there's the edge of the mountain. And there's a reason why there are so many twists and turns in that road. And as much as you'd like to think of this as a straight road, the road is not going to bend to your preference. You're going to have to submit your preferences for driving to the road. And you're going to have to, we all are going to have to, submit our preferences for Jesus to Jesus. And not our imaginations about Jesus. And Jesus here is one who recognizes that what we have here in this temple, what we have here is God's mechanism, His vehicle, His place. Where redemption, where the work of grace, where the connection, where the relationship is all meant to come together. And to take this most important of all issues, fallen man being able to be reconciled to an amazing God. And even with the best of intentions, create a distraction. Well, homie, don't play. (laughs) And it's not going to go down that way much longer. So my first point is, if it works, I'm going to try I bet this will work. Watch this. Oh, come on, baby. I can try everything. My first point is, oh, no, he didn't. I almost said it the way I wanted to, but Lindsay cautioned me. That's not going to work with you, Dad. I'm going to try it anyway. Let me just just have a a guest point uh, proclaimer. And Gwen, just say this point for me. Can you stand up, please? Do that neck thing that you were doing, too. What she said. Oh. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. We see what one last time. Come on, Gwen. Ready? There it is. For good measure. Oh no, he did. All right. And, 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 yet, and yet he did. And, and the reason is that holiness is no joke. Amen. Holiness is the, the beautiful reality of where God is, where God lives, what, what he is all about. And in that, in that holiness, I mean, look, look at what it says here of Jesus in Isaiah 59. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn back there just to, to capture this thing better. But in Isaiah 59, the the Bible says, He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. 
He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. What was it that that God was looking for? He was looking for righteousness, justice. His own arm had to achieve salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him as he put on a helmet of salvation, garments of vengeance, wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak, according to what they have done, so he will repay. Wrath to his enemies, retribution to his foes, he will repay their due. But from the west, people will feast fear for the name of the Lord. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. And the temple is filled with God's glory. The temple is the place where all connection to who we were always meant to be. From the fall on, it has always been God's heart cry that that we would come back to him. Not by compromise. By him remaining holy and us coming back to him on his terms. Not on ours. Not in our great ingenuity. Not in our great expediencies of how we might make it easier to come to him. And Christ makes it absolutely clear the depth of desire that God has that we would really come to him. But why is it that he had to do this? Because, oh no, you didn't. And what they were doing here was... Veiling the glory that really was the temple. Hindering seekers, Gentiles, from flowing in God's ultimate plan. God didn't have a plan just for Israel to be Israel. Israel was a city set on a hill so that all nations could be inspired and to flow into it. God's desire is that all nations, all nations would would, would know this Jesus, would know this salvation, would know this place of redemption. And begin to flow to God. And, and in small ways and maybe in greater ways. What had become a place of welcome reception in the temple courts. Became a place of doing and distraction. A place of so much activity. But activity that, that didn't bring us to the Lord. And, you know, and even for us as we... Kind of consider this whole idea here. We, we need to consider that as Jesus comes, you know, there's a lot in Malachi that is, that is foretold of when God comes, when Jesus comes, when God comes in his fullness, he's going to come into his temple and it's going to be a new story. And that's happening here in this scene. In John 2, all that they had hoped for from Malachi, the 400 years of prophetic silence, is suddenly, quickly, all being realized of what was said there in Malachi. Let me, let me uh, kind of reference that here. Back to the watch. Watch works. Oh. Uh-oh. Did, can, I think we both hit it, didn't we? Can you, can you go? No, backwards, backwards, backwards. Sorry. There you go. Um, in, in Malachi 2... There, there the Bible reads, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good, are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. 
That is a frightening thought. I remember reading this this week, preparing for this, saying, is that really in the Bible? Like, whoa, how did I miss that? All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them, so they say. Or where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And we saw that in John the Baptist. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear, but do who, who, who I'm sorry, who deprive the foreigners, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. You know, for us, I think as we look for application in the oh, no, you didn't of what they did and think about how do we hinder seekers? How do we hinder those that want to come into the kind of periphery of the redemption of God? What is it that we do? You know what the number one reason is on survey after survey after survey? Is that people say, well, the number one reason people reject Christianity is Christians. The hypocrisy of Christians. Now, we know because a lot of us have come from various awful degrees of hypocrisy in our, in our own life. But that's not to say, oh, well, we're, we're all that now. I know I'm not. But my goodness, the, the degree to which generalized hypocrisy is really hindering those from coming to know the Lord, from really just decimating and, and, and really uh, bringing shame upon the temple that, that, is, that is Jesus, is through hypocrisy. But by the way, among... Among groups where, I've cited this stat before, but it bears repeating here. Among groups that were surveyed in suburban neighborhoods, if they would demonstrably object to a, and they they were asking white folks this, demonstrably object if a person of color moved in next door to you. And the, the group that said that they would object most, uh, frequently, the highest percentage? Southern Baptists. Right behind them, this is, I'm just telling you what the survey said. And, and, and number two was born again Christians or evangelical Christians. What in the world? Atheists were pretty far below those. We've got a, a few other groups that I can mention as well, but that's, that's number one and number two? How does that happen? My goodness, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. But how, how is that? How is that in any way re- reflecting of the 
holiness and the temple and the justice of God. There was also a study done of true love weights. Evangelical Christians who put on a ring while they were teens, saying that they would wait until their wedding day before they would engage in in sexual activity, especially intercourse. And it was a long longitudinal study. Columbia and Yale did the study. At the end of it, after some some 12 years, and they looked at thousands and thousands of of respondents, the percentage of these born-again young Christians that waited until marriage was a little bit shocking. Or should I say, the number that had sex with the true love weights ring on was really shocking. 50% would be shocking. 70% would be shocking. 75% would be shocking. 88% is just a travesty. And that's what it was. That's the temple of God. That's the holiness of God. That's the city on the hill. That's what's going to bring seekers to know the Lord. Is that... But let's bring it home. How about us as well? Come on. You know, there's nothing sadder than being in a Bible study with someone, with some of the other brothers around. And we're talking about purity and being kind of released from the ugliness of pornography that has gripped us as young men in this world. This is back when I was a young man. I'm not claiming to be a young man in this <laughs> scenario. But, but anyway, but sitting and having a study. And, and, and I remember for myself, sitting with four or five brothers as as we talked about really repenting of this issue of, of pornography and repentance and, uh, and selfish fleshly indulgence. And, and I remember one after another, as I kind of giggled nervously about my own sin, thinking, well, you know, that, that one's never going away. Uh, and everybody sitting there saying, why not? One after another, why not? I was like, well, has it for you? It has. Has it for you? It has. No, I, I get now why in Thessalonica, Paul says, we shared with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. And as a result, they took the gospel as the word of God. But to sit in a study now and to likewise bring the scriptures that talk about purity and repenting from impurities and repenting from immoralities and, and then thinking, okay, this is great. Now we're all going to share about what God has done and and how he's delivered us. And then to have a brother in the study that just says, well, yeah, I I guess we're always going to struggle with that. How does that help a seeker? Where's the power of the gospel? Where's the transformation in your soul of the Holy Spirit? Well, so what are you trying to say? We all need to be perfect. No, I'm not saying that, but my goodness, there should not be a pattern of intentional sins in our life. My, my goodness, what is, what is that? We are to be that city on the hill. We are to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the body of Christ. I, I think if we want to be the holy temple, we got to recognize that among us here, sitting here, not those people out there, not those denominational people out there, right here, we've got, we got bags of unconfessed sin that we're hanging on to. And I think you're not having the joy and the release 
and the, the unfettered Christianity, being able to run the race without the weight, yeah. not knowing that. I think there's a lot of slipping into materialism. Forgetting about even what Malachi will talk about uh, at length of giving God our, our first and our best. Like a lot of times, the, because of our own materialism or debt, we just give God our leftovers. Rather than the first and the best. And the, the celebration when that really does happen. And it's, it's difficult as you contemplate it, but when you do, oh my goodness, the joy that comes from that. I would imagine that there's some flirtatious overtures going on in school or at work or with old friends, maybe over social media. And, and if you allow that to start without throwing up the beauty of light in, into that situation, my goodness, the next step and the next step. It's already a blight on the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. But my goodness, what would the next step even be? And, and your personal ability to know the significance of being aligned with the work of God. Yeah. Let's clean it out. Maybe, maybe, they, well, I'm not on social media. I'm not flirting there. Well, maybe you're actually having a conversation in a Google Doc, thinking that that's being clever. And nobody really knows what's really going on there. Teens, you know what I'm talking about. Of what happens in these collaborative little documents that even the school can't track because it comes under their radar. Clean it out. We've got to clean it out. If you've got your Insta account, you've got your Finsta account, you've got the real you, you've got the fake you, Younger people, you're all over Facebook because you know not only is your mom on it, but your grandmom is on it. So you act like, yeah, it's, it's okay because you get to put a face there. Again, this is what they were doing. This is religious hypocrisy is what Jesus was railing about. You're kind of doing the right events and the right activities, but oh my goodness, please have the heart. Have the heart behind these things. Even, even cowardice about what we're really meant to be doing to be bringing the seekers into the temple courts. The, the opportunities that we just like, ah, whatever. Again, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are that now. I, I think unless we can appreciate just how significant you are as you sit here, you're not going to have a zeal for the holiness that Jesus has for you. That Jesus has for us collectively. This is not about condemnation. This is about a zeal for being who we're always meant to be. This is about a zeal and a love that, my goodness, if you could only know the glory, the glory that attends to you. Wow! The greatness and the difference of the trajectory of our lives. We need to... We need to confess these things. We need to get back to having the, the beauty of refreshment of repentance. Repentance brings refreshment. 
There's not one single time where I know I'm going to confess something that I don't dread every step that I take. Every step that I take. It's like a death march to that conversation. But you know, it doesn't look that way when I leave, does it? No, I'm, I'm dancing a jig away from there if I knew how to do that. It's always the case. Why? Because I've suddenly aligned myself with Jesus' zeal. Jesus' zeal for me and Jesus' zeal for for the very body of Christ. It's coming. And, oh yes, he did. You know, he didn't just condemn the activity of that temple. He didn't just lament over the fact that what had been a beautiful system of redemption and deliverance and sacrifice and ransom to bring people back into alignment with a confidence approaching the throne of God. He didn't just do that. He put his money where his mouth was. He did so much more than that. In 1 Corinthians 5, as we look at Passover here in John 2, we're reminded that for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. His love and his zeal was not just one where he's going to sit in judgment and point around and say, go do this and do that to get right. God so dearly wants us right. God so dearly wants us effective. God so dearly wants us to be the temple of the Lord where people can stream in that he goes to this length. And by the way, if it wasn't in the temple courts historically for the Jews, where did they exchange the money? Where did they come from far away and procure the lamb? Where did they get their sacrifice so that the blood could be spilt and they could be redeemed? Where did it happen? You know where it happened? If you looked out the east gate, looking out of the temple, out right out of the front of the temple, out the east gate, there was a big valley called the Kidron Valley. Didn't happen there. But if you go up that valley, halfway up the slope is where it happened. Right there, less than a kilometer away from, from the temple itself. And where was that spot on the other slope of the Kidron Valley? The Mount of Olives. That's where this used to happen. That's where the lambs were prepared. That's where the sacrifices began. And that's where you or you or you as a Jew coming to you could, could gain the, the, the very vehicle of redemption that was yours. And that's where Jesus, at his third Passover that will be mentioned by John, will go to that very spot. He models the very thing that he wanted. Models it, though, not with a lamb, but with himself. When the Ethiopian eunuch is coming back from the temple, discouraged because he probably had a hand put in his face that he couldn't participate fully in the Gentile seeking that was going on there for a variety of reasons, by the way. But as he's making his way back, he's still wrestling with the scriptures. And he reads in Isaiah... He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb that is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He wanted to know because he saw these lambs 
He's like, who is he talking about? Who is Isaiah talking about, he asked Philip. Himself or someone else? And Philip, of course, says, I'm about to tell you the good news about Jesus. And so he did. And the Ethiopian eunuch soon after became part of the very temple of God. The Ethiopian eunuch became a conduit for Gentiles to stream into the temple courts to know God. The Ethiopian eunuch filled with the Holy Spirit now went back to Ethiopia to help that Gentile nation come to know God. Oh, yes, he did. Jesus did all of that and then some for us to make it plain that I'm not just here stating what it's meant to look like. I'm here affecting what it's meant to look like. I want you to be pure. I want you to be holy. I want you to be spirit-filled. I want you to be different. I want you to be righteous. I want you to be effective. And so, he makes us all of that. If, if you've not yet responded to what Jesus has done for you, if you've not yet known the beauty of radical repentance and the baptism that even the Ethiopian eunuch embraced as soon as he learned who the Lamb was, if, if that is not the reality of what your path has been, please, oh please, don't let Jesus' zeal be for nothing. Jesus wants you here. In His zeal, He wants you right. He wants you part of the very temple of God. Brought into the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't let this go by. And for the rest of us, The rest of us, oh yes, we will. Amen. Let me give you this final charge. And I pray that we don't let Jesus' zeal for us go by today without the effect that it was meant to have on us. That that refiner's fire, that, that launderer's soap will have its effect on us. We need to be more than what we are. And there's a simple way for that to be the case. We need to clean up the temple, brothers and sisters. Let's clean up the temple. Clean up your corner of the temple today. Grab someone. Text someone now if you can't grab that person right now. Text them right now. Set up time for confession, repentance, cleansing, and refreshment. Amen.